Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. In this series titled How to Pray, we're learning how to have conversations with God even when we're too skeptical or too scared to try. We're glad that you've joined us and hope that you're inspired by what you learn about the Lord's Prayer to talk to God in a different way than you ever have before. If you're interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings at 5 or Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. Let's pray before we uh, open the word. Father, we, uh, we recognize the fact that you are present here this morning in this place in the midst of your body, that your spirit is alive and well, and that he's at work. We pray that he'd be at work in us as we look at the scriptures, as we try to align our heart with your heart. Uh, may this moment be transformative for us as we understand you better and understand your heart and your will better. We ask that that would happen through you and your power and the spirit you have put within us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take a moment and reflect and answer this question. Why do you pray? Just look inside and Think for a moment, what is the primary motive behind you spending time in prayer? I know it's usually mixed. There's lots of reasons. Sometimes we're in crisis and there's nothing else to do and all kinds of things. But stand back and look at your heart. Why do you typically pray? Lots of answers to that question. As I was thinking through it, some of the things that popped in my mind is, well, I pray because I'm supposed to, right? Uh, followers of Jesus do that. That's, that's the thing we're supposed to do. Sometimes it's just an act of obedience. And there is nothing wrong with that. Obedience is always a good thing. So that's okay. That's good. Sometimes we pray because we want to uh, experience communion with God. It's just this conversation. We're, we're in this place where we have this privilege to interact with the God of the universe. And we want to commune with him. We want to experience him. You see this all over the Psalms. I think that was uh, a lot of David's motivations at time. I think a lot of times we pray because we want to move the hand that moves the universe, right? James chapter 5 says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Uh, it's this notion that prayer actually makes a difference and changes things. And oftentimes we pray because we want God to act. So there's this obedience piece. There's this communion with God piece. This, this, this change the world piece. Um, my guess is those overlap at different times. Different things push us to prayer. Well, we're in a series we've entitled How to Pray. And I think we're doing this series because we need to get better at it. I, uh, a couple of years back, was in a small group that had grown pretty close and had become pretty honest with each other, and we were talking about this notion of prayer, and I asked people to rate themselves on a scale of 1 to 10. How would you rate your prayer life? You know, 10 being just awesome, effective, amazing, and 1 being, ugh. You know where people rated themselves primarily? 
around two or three. And I had to be honest. I thought, that's where I put me. I mean, this whole prayer thing is a struggle. I don't know if that's sometimes a reflection of personality or just a reflection of reality. I think not all of us, but the majority of us wrestle with prayer because it's hard. That's why we're doing this series so we can get a bit better at this thing. So the way we structured this series, we decided to spend the first part of it looking at the Lord's Prayer just to get some of the foundational things uh, understood that kind of work that we can build our prayer life upon. And I think as you go through the, the Lord's Prayer, you see the obedience piece we were talking about and the communion piece with God and the change the world piece. All those are mixed in. But I've come to the conclusion that one of the most profound reasons we should pray, and this is reflected in the Lord's Prayer, is that there is an aspect of prayer that brings about transformation. Paul was getting at this this morning when he was talking about that prayer is an invitation to intimacy, not for the sake of intimacy, but to know God's heart and to line ours to his. To put it a little differently, the purpose of prayer may be more to change us than to change the world or simply to commune with God. No, we don't typically think of prayer that way, that I'm going to go pray so I can be changed. But I think that's what happens. And I think that's what happens as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, I think one way to look at the Lord's Prayer is as what I've labeled the the boomerang prayer. You know what a boomerang is? It's that, that's a boomerang. You, you throw the thing, and because of the aerodynamics of how it is designed and the lift and drag and all this stuff and spinning, it goes out and it comes right back at you. You probably didn't know this, but there is a United States national boomerang team. We have a team for everything. And there is a boomerang champion, Logan Broadbent. Uh, He's a world champion boomerang thrower. Why you would want to be the world champion boomerang throwing, I don't know, but there is one. But I was watching him on YouTube, and it's pretty amazing. He throws that thing, and it just comes right back. And I think that's what this prayer does. We pray it, and it comes back and sometimes hits us in the face. It's transformative. It's to change us. Let's pray the prayer together and then we'll, we'll look at that. And I'm gonna try to bring out this boomerang effect as we do this morning. But right now, can I actually ask you to stand and we're gonna pray the Lord's Prayer? Wanna put into practice what we're talking about? If you got one of these, it's, you can look or you can look on the screen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you. You can be, be seated, please. 
Now you can see the boomerang effect from the very start. And just to review a little bit, last week Paul talked about our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, um, those words impact you. The moment you say our Father, you're not only saying something about the sovereignty of God and your relationship, but you're also saying something about your identity. That The boomerang effect is if he's my father, then I'm, I'm his child. I'm, I'm a son or daughter of God. And that reshapes how I see myself in, in the world. Uh, the other thing is when you pray Father, it's not my father or I. There's no I in this whole prayer. It's all plural. It's our father. And think about the impact that has. You pray our father, goes out, comes back, and you suddenly realize, oh, I'm not alone in this thing. There are others, and they're in relationship with God. And because they're in relationship with the father, and I'm in relationship with the father, uh, there's a connection between us. And that has implications for how we treat others. Once we understand that they're God's kids, sons and daughters of the Most High, it puts obligations on us to treat them in a certain way. There's something about the Lord's Prayer that is incredibly unifying. I just want you to think about this. For me, how you treat my kids is one of the most important things, uh, one of the things that matters most to me. If you're good to my kids, man, you go up in my estimation. There are people who have mentored my kids. I just cherish them in my heart because of the impact they've had. But if you mistreat my kids, there's hell to pay. Literally. I I mean, that's one of the worst things you can do in my world is mistreat my kids. Well, you see the boomerang effect? The moment I say our father, it has all kinds of implications, not only in my relationship to him, but my relationship to others. Or or take the first request, hallowed be your name. A strange word, hallow means honor, and it's this idea of putting God in his proper place and hallowing his name. His name just represents his total being, his, his character. In a sense, what you're praying when you say, hallowed be the, your name, you're saying, God, may your name be honored. May it be given weight. May, it, may you be given your proper place in life. In other words, the boomerang effect is the moment you pray that, you're saying something about what motivates you in life. If you want God's name to be honored, then what you're saying is, I want God to be glorified in the world, in my community, and in me. Do you see the impact, this boomerang effect? Every time you pray something, it comes back and sometimes it slaps you in the face because it brings expectations on how you're to be and who you're to be. This is a prayer that shapes us. Well, this morning we come to the second request uh, in verse 10. It's very simple. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I happen to be of the opinion that this is one of the most radically radical requests we can pray. If we pray it with understanding, the boomerang effect on us is absolutely huge because it will shape our whole life. It'll shape our, our, our attitude and our heart and our will and our behavior. 
A couple things to understand uh, about this request. It's not really two requests, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's one request because these two phrases are kind of in parallel. They, they, they define each other. We, we need to understand both of them to really understand their, their meaning. And we under, need to understand that third phrase, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, the, the three phrases kind of work like a chord uh, intertwined with one another. And we're going to have to wrestle with their individual meaning and then put them together to, to really understand what the request, what the request is. And, and I think sometimes it's hard for us to grab their meaning because these are words we mouth all the time. We say kingdom all the time. We say God's will all the time on earth as it is in heaven. We're not sure what that means. But all their, the meaning is a little bit vague for us. So we'll see if we can bring a little bit of clarity to that this morning. So let's look individually at each of the phrases, and then we'll talk about their implications. Uh, kingdom come. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of a, a, a kingdom? Normally, uh, we think of a place. A kingdom is a, is a place. But in the scriptures, the word for kingdom isn't really describing a place. It's describing this, this notion of authority, Authority. It's the Greek word basilia, and it means to rule or, or to reign. It has a notion of a place involved in it, but, but that's not the heart of the word. The kingdom is a sphere or place where you have authority to arrange everything to your purposes and to your values. It's, it's an environment in which you arrange things the way you want them to be. In my house, there's one place which is my kingdom, where my authority and my rule reigns. In all the rest of the house, somebody else's authority and rule reigns. <laughs> but in this one place, my office, that's my kingdom. Uh, every picture on the wall is there because I want it there. And if it's out of place, it's out of place because I want it out of place. <laughs> All the knickknacks that are strewn around this room are there because they mean something to me. They might not mean anything to anybody else, but they're important to me. In my kingdom, I have three desks. At that drafting table in the middle, which is just awesome and huge, and I can lay out all my stuff, and I've got an antique roll top against the wall that came from my grandmother, and then I've got a, a jeweler's desk I use for projects. And you say, what do you need three desks for? Who cares why I need them? I need them. It's my kingdom. I can have them if I want. Right? Because it's my place. In my kingdom is everything, everything is the way I want it to be. It's in the right spot, all my books everything. There's the right level of dust. There's the right level of dirt. There's the right level of messiness. Okay? That's my office. Um, and in this place, my purposes are accomplished. It's my kingdom. Now, there are some unstated rules about my kingdom in my house. If you borrow something from my kingdom, you better put it back. I'm still looking for my scissors one of my kids took them the last two weeks. I don't know where they are, but they'll hear about it when I find them. Do not leave stuff in my kingdom, right? If you do, it will disappear. 
Don't tell me my kingdom is messy or dirty or dusty. I don't care. It's my kingdom. Mess with my kingdom and there's trouble in paradise. And when somebody messes with my kingdom, takes a book or moves my stuff, disorder sets in. Sin has entered into my kingdom, has crept in. And there is chaos. The kingdom has been disturbed. And once the kingdom's disturbed, things have to be made right. The kingdom has to be restored. And when things are made right again, then my agenda, my program comes, is accomplished, and the kingdom has arrived. Do you get the point? God has authority, and he wants his rule and reign to seep into this place in which we live. So the request for the kingdom come is simply the request that God would exercise that authority in this sphere that we call life so that his purposes are accomplished and his agenda is done and his values are expressed. And when those things come to reality, when his story and his program moves forward, then his kingdom is coming. And this is important to understand because I think there's confusion about this in Christendom today. God's kingdom does not come by the use of political power or coercion or force or compulsion by his people taking control, implementing their kind of religious agenda. Rather, it comes by service and compassion and sacrifice and love. It comes by changing minds and hearts and living out the gospel. If you think about it, how did Jesus bring about the initiation of his kingdom? Not by taking control and throwing out the Romans like so many of his followers wanted him to do so that he could establish his kingdom by force. Jesus initiates his kingdom and brings it about how? By going to the cross, sacrificing himself because of his love for us and dying. And in that, the kingdom is inaugurated. Just blows your mind, doesn't it? But that's the kingdom coming. And by the way, if you want to understand the kingdom in its fullness, what God's agenda is for all of history and where we're going and how it impacts us and the part you should play in it, which is all important stuff, take perspectives. That's why we say it's an essential part of our discipleship to to take perspectives because it gives you that big big picture notion of, of, of the kingdom. Take that class and when you pray that kingdom come, you'll start understanding all that that means and the implications of that. Now, here's the boomerang effect, right? If I'm going to be asking for his kingdom to come, then that request comes back on me and challenges me to pursue it. I can't pray for his kingdom to come if I'm not willing to become active in seeking it. That's why Jesus says that seeking his kingdom and his righteousness has to be the Highest priority of our lives, seek it first. In other words, when I start praying that kingdom come, it it molds me and challenges me to make my focus and my priority 
the coming of his kingdom, his rule, his reign, in all of life, in me, in my community, and in my world, his kingdom comes. Second phrase, God's will be done. The word here for will is simply the word that means uh, wish or desire. Uh, God's will is simply what God's want done. And there's different aspects to God's will. There's his sovereign will. There's those things where, where God is going to bring about his agenda no matter what. He's going to make it happen. We, we sometimes refer to that as his decrees. There is a moment in time where, where Satan is totally destroyed, where evil is put asunder, where justice rolls down and things are made right. I mean, that's where we're going, a new heaven, new earth, the resurrection people, those things are going to happen. And when we pray his will be done, we, in a sense, we're not changing anything about his will or what's gonna happen, that's gonna happen, but we get to participate. It's his sovereign will. Another aspect to, to God's will is his permissive will. And in this sphere, there is freedom. We have freedom to choose to do what God wants us to do or to reject what God wants us to do. And that's where the struggle is in this prayer. And one place you see that, the other place this phrase actually is used is on the mouth of Jesus, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's wrestling with going to the cross and as he wrestles, uh, he asks God to take this, this requirement of him dying as a sacrifice away. Figure out a different way to get this done. That's what he wants. That's his desire. But then he says, but not my will, your will be done. See the boomerang effect? The moment you pray that prayer, you're in this wrestling match. What are you gonna do? My brother and I used to get in wrestling matches. He was much bigger and stronger than I am and much more athletic and I would always lose. When I lost, what did I have to do? Uncle, right? I researched where that word come from. Nobody knows. <laughs> but it means I give, I surrender. And when we start praying that, that's the the struggle, that's the struggle for obedience, isn't it? It's a contest of my will or God's will, and am I going to give in or not give in? My wife made artificial body parts for people, facial stuff, and what they would do oftentimes is they'd take a mold, if you were missing an ear, they'd take a, a, an impression of where the ear was to be, and then she would sit down and carve it out of clay. And one of the things I've learned over time is that there are different kinds of clay. Some are more moldable than others. And the clay that's very moldable is the easiest to carve and work with. And, and I think that's what happens when we pray that prayer, your will be done, it, 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 it's making us become moldable clay where we get into the habit of bending our will to his. Because the goal of being moldable with clay is not simply that we, we cry uncle, I don't want to, but I, I, I'm forced to, I cry uncle. That's not the goal. The goal is to become moldable. So not only do we give into his will, but we want his will. We want what God wants. 
And that becomes a mark of maturity, a willingness to want what he wants, even though we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing or, or how his will's working out in our lives, and we struggle with that. And, and that ability to want what he wants is all based on trust. The more we trust God as our Father, the more moldable we'll become to his will in our lives. There's a famous, famous prayer, and, and this is kind of the ultimate impact of the boomerang effect is the ability to pray this prayer. This famous prayer, it was uh, uh, from John Wesley. Um, he used to pray it all the time, and it's really a prayer of submission to God's will, whatever it might be. And this is the end goal of the boomerang effect of praying, your will, not mine. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. See the boomerang effect? Your will be done. It changes us. Third phrase is on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, this is kind of an interesting phrase. We're not really sure when we read that what, what is meant by earth and heaven. Let me give you the best way I've heard it explained. And this came from the Bible Project. I don't like their wording. The way to think about this is not as physical places of heaven up here and earth down here. The way to think about this is as heaven as is God's space. And earth is human space, our space, the realm of this world. Heaven is not some place you can go to. You can't fly to it or take a spaceship to it. Heaven is really another dimension. It exists in the supernatural world. And what's unique about heaven, and, and this is the point that the authors, that, that Jesus is getting to, to when you pray on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is, because it's God's space, it's the place of his authority where it comes in its fullness, right? There is no rebellion in heaven. There is no sin in heaven. There is no alternative, via, uh, alternative uh, to God's rule in heaven, it's where his kingdom has come to its fullest. Um, but on earth, it is different. Earth is a bubble of rebellion. I mean, God's purposes are waiting in the wings. And, and if, to see that, all you have to do is to turn on the evening news or walk out in your community and look what's going on or look inside your own heart. <laughs> And you can see that there are bubbles of rebellion. And a big picture, I mean, read the news, there's shooting rampages, assassinations, 
the Delta virus is, is spreading more. The Taliban are, are taking over Afghanistan. There's murder and rape and trafficking and disease and hunger. I mean, you just say, it's a mess. Well, yeah, it's earth. But in heaven, things are not that way. And what happens is when Jesus comes, earth gets invaded by heaven. God's space breaks into earth's space. And the notion of the kingdom is that that's going to take over more and more until one day it happens in a cataclysmic way and heaven, in a sense, comes to earth. And all the bubbles of rebellion are done away with. I like that phrase that John Ortberg uses. Billy quoted it. May the up there come down here. May God's space overtake our space. May your kingdom come. That's the prayer. And it's a prayer that that just changes us as we pray it. So let me give you a couple implications of this prayer. The first is a huge shift in perspective. As you pray this prayer, it's going to change your perspective on life because what it, the boomerang effect is you begin to understand that life is not about me. Rather, life really is to be about him and his kingdom. And that's a huge shift that has to take place in us. David Foster Wallace is a famous author and uh, in 2005, he did a commencement address at Kenyon College, and it's called This is Water. And it's just a, a, Wallace was not a believer, but he was insightful into the nature of human beings. And I, I love what he says here about us. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. Here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. We don't talk about that reality in polite company, but it's true, it's going on inside of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience is there in front of you or behind you, to the left of you or to the right of you, or on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate urgent, real. Please don't worry that I'm getting ready to lecture you about compassion or other directedness or all the so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. People who can adjust their natural default setting 
this way are often described as being well-adjusted, which I should suggest to you is not an accidental term. You see, the more we pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer has the ability to shift us from being self-centered to being God-centered. And that shift from self-centeredness to being God-centered and other-centered is really, in some ways, the measure of maturity. Uh, Friday, um, I got to babysit my granddaughter, Madeline, who is three. And, oh, man, we picked her up Thursday night. She was so ecstatic because she got to come by herself. She has a sister who is, who is five, Emmeline, and Emmeline had to stay home because she had to go to her activities. But Madeline got to come to our house. And the reason she was so ecstatic is because she knew the day was going to be all about her. Man, and it was. She wanted pancakes, she got pancakes. She wanted to go run through the hose, we ran through the hose. She wanted to get into the hot tub, we got into the hot tub. She wanted to watch Rhea, The Pursuit of the Drag, whatever it is, and and, uh, uh, princess movies. And we watched, I watched Rhea and princess movies. I mean, the day was all about her, right? She got to sleep over, it was so much fun. About six o'clock on Friday, her parents come to pick her up and bring with her Emily, her sister. And Emmeline comes into the room and Madeline says to her, go home. <laughs> I want to be here by myself. <laughs> and you think, well, that's what three-year-olds do. The whole world is about them and what they want. Folks, if you're 50 and the whole world is still about you and what you want, there's something wrong. And one of the boomerang effects of this prayer is to pray that God's kingdom come and that his will be done. That has to shift our focus from ourselves to him. It's a transforming prayer. Second uh, implication is this prayer is that this prayer reframes the notion of prayer itself. So Jesus gives this prayer to teach us that, that praying is not simply about experiencing his presence or bending God's will to meet ours or to melt and soften him to do our bidding. The real work of prayer is not to get God to do what we want, but for us to want what God desires. That's the real work of prayer. And and, and get this, praying for his kingdom and his will proceeds, comes first, before any of our asking for anything. And here's why, because once we align our will with his and our agenda with his kingdom, it changes what we pray. 
And once we're aligned with his will and his kingdom, then we can pray whatever we want because what we want is his kingdom and his will. So now I can pray whatever I want. But if I'm not aligned with his kingdom and his will and his desires, then praying uh, is this challenge. But aligning with the kingdom and his will changes what we pray. Let me give you an example. Pray for my kids. You know what I want to pray for my kids just in me? I want to pray that they're happy, that they're successful, that they're healthy, that they're safe. (laughs) And I come to the realization as I pray for God's kingdom to come and his will be done, that God really doesn't care all that much about their happiness, success, health, and safety. No, he doesn't. He does care about their character. He does care about them fulfilling his purposes. He does care about the development of their spiritual depth. He does care that they grow in compassion and desire for justice and mercy and that they become all that he wants them to be. That's what matters to him. All that other stuff, their happiness and comfort and safety and blah, blah, that's secondary. So if I'm letting this prayer have its impact on me, it changes how I pray for my kids. You see, I I think there is a huge place, and this is going to push against us Protestants, all right, or at least evangelicals. There is a huge place for ritual prayer in life. Praying the same prayer again and again. Not in vain repetition, which Jesus says is worthless, but in thoughtful repetition. I think one of the things that can help you do that is Anglican prayer beads. It's kind of stealing off the notion of the Catholic rosary. I'm not great at this thing of prayer, but I found this helpful. The prayer beads are designed in such that, and you can buy books on this that help you figure out what some of the ritual prayers you can pray, but there's an an invitatory bead after the cross. So think about the crucifixion and what Jesus has done on the cross. Then you have an invitatory prayer. And then you repeat certain prayers as you go around the beads multiple, multiple times because it's a kind of way of weaving it into your head, into your heart. And then when you're done, you come back to the invitatory prayer and that always ends with reciting the Lord's Prayer. There is something powerful about doing that again and again and again and again and doing it thoughtfully. We have gone so far to the notion of spontaneous prayer that we've missed out on the transformative power of ritual prayer. I was talking to somebody this morning as they came in, and we were talking about they had gone to a, a Catholic funeral, a rosary. They had a rosary before the funeral, and the rosary, you go through these ritual prayers. And she was going thinking, oh, this is going to be incredibly boring. And she found it incredibly comforting and very beautiful and moving. Because there's something about the ritual prayer that's done thoughtfully 
that is engaging and comforting and reminding and transformative. There's a reason to pray the Lord's Prayer again and again and again. So, what would be the impact of praying your kingdom come, your will be done? What would it look like for that to start happening in us and in our lives and in our community and in our world? You probably may not realize this, but at Waterstone we have three rhythms, right? The rhythm of transform, the rhythm of neighboring, the rhythm of restoration. And all those rhythms have been designed around this notion of the kingdom coming into these different spheres. When the kingdom comes in us, there's transformation. When the kingdom comes to others, it's neighboring. It's introducing them to the king. When the kingdom comes into the world, it's restoration. I sat down and I spent a little time thinking about what it would mean for the kingdom to come in each of those areas. And I just want to share with you some of what I put down. What does it mean for the kingdom to come in us to transform? What would it look like for God to really transform my values and what I think is important? What if he started working at the deepest places of my heart to change my wants and my desires? What would shift in me and my family and my world? What if I started finding my ultimate satisfaction in him and not in all those other things that the world says is so important that distract me? What if I really started to change and move away from my self-centeredness to being centered on him and others? What if he really started to make my heart conformed and molded to his heart? What if he conquered my lust and my materialism, my worry, my anger, my anxiety, my hatred, my stubbornness, my bitterness, my judgmentalness, my bigotry? What if his kingdom came into my heart, into the little bubble of rebellion that at times is me? What does it mean for the kingdom to come in others? to neighbor? What if I started to really pray for his kingdom to come in those in my sphere of influence that he has put me into contact with? What, what, what if I really just learned my neighbor's name so that I could pray for them? What if I actually talked to them and engaged them in conversation and entered to, uh, just a bit into their lives, maybe even invited them over for a meal? What if I got a sense of the big picture of my sphere of impact? What, what if I began to get the perspective and see the lost world at hand and pray for the advance of the gospel and the kingdom in, in places beyond my own place, into countries out there 
And what if it became my heart's desire that God would be known and honored in every tribe, language, and nation, and my heart wept for the world? What does it mean for the kingdom to come in our world? In other words, restore. What if the things that break God's heart started to break our hearts? What would it mean if we started to see the world through his eyes? What if we really became aware and concerned about those who had less, who are hungry, who are mistreated, who are enslaved, who are abused, who are lonely, who are desperate, who are scared for their lives, who are just barely making it and struggling to survive. If they moved us, would it change our perspective and our understanding? What if injustice really began to bother us and we started to notice all those places it ruled and God did not? And what would happen if every time we heard about injustice, it hurt our hearts? What if compassion took over our lives and our hearts and our minds and and compassion and the love of others became the driving force of, of all we do and how we think and our actions and our politics and everything involved in our world? What if we started paying attention to what is going on in the world and praying for God's kingdom to come in every place of suffering, injustice, and mistreatment? Would we see things differently? What if the kingdom and and not our own self-interest became the lens through which we viewed the world, our government, our politics, our lives, our jobs, all of it? To pray for the kingdom to come is to pray for the end of injustice, the end of hunger, the end of oppression and evil and death and guilt and abuse and traffic and corruption and the end of suffering. Folks, (laughs) are you getting it? This is a big cosmic prayer that changes us, our community, our church, and our world. It changes everything. The boomerang effect is this notion that we cannot pray in that way without it changing us. May the up there come down here and may it start with me. Let's pray. Father, this morning we stand here and we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done as it is on earth. May it it be on earth as it is in heaven. Father, make that our heart's desire and let those words change us, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King, amen.